0: Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hey, everybody. It's Ethan from Love Extremist Radio. And I'm here with...
1: (laughs) Me, Michelle.
0: (laughs) Michelle and I, if you haven't listened back on our episodes, are in love. And actually are now engaged to be married, which we haven't talked about on Love Extremist Radio.
1: But it happened. But it happened. It's happening. It's
0: happening. (laughs) And we got
1: a ring and a date.
0: We got a ring, we got a date, we got love. (laughs) And we're in quarantine. (laughs) So, you know, the podcast studio is the living room, is the dining room, is everything.
1: Yes. I'm all up in your space and business. You're all up in my space and business. We're all no boundaries
0: everybody's on myspace (laughs) so we're gonna do a little experiment to kick off this episode uh and talk a little bit about cultivating love in our life right now and some things that have come up over the last week and if it hits maybe we'll keep doing it
1: yeah so ethan what have you loved in the last week
0: oh man Well, I've been realizing I had a conversation with a friend named Ian, who's a leader in the young Jewish community here in Los Angeles. And he called me and said, how can I support you? And in that call, I said, you know, I'd love to connect with more people of different generations than my own and talk about liberation and love and all the things on the podcast. And he has since sent me like 10 people who are all incredible amazing individuals from generations above and below me and we've had incredible conversations so I'm really excited to share those and I just want to thank Ian for asking me that question and following through and making those introductions and I think it's just a testament to a way of giving love to our community right now where you can just reach out to someone and say hey how can I support you and very often
1: it's a person right totally that's such a underused question like how can I support you or even like more specifically how can I support be supportive to you right now totally like I I think that sometimes that question takes people aback because they're not used to it getting asked of them so often leaders in a space are like the ones who do the supporting right right? and I consider you a leader and you don't often ask for help so when or like you know assistance in any way so when someone just gives you that space spaciousness um it is so gratifying and generous
0: it It really is and i'm sending him a gift this week to thank him for that but additionally um there's been some other amazing sources of love we participated in a salon all about love, the yeah. Love Extremist Living Room Salon, which is now a weekly occurrence. We had our first one last week with Caleb and Lavina, who wrote a sex journal.
1: It was so fun.
0: Super dope. <laughs> um, check out a sex journal. They are actually offering a free PDF download of their journal, and they talked all about the value of just journaling during sex and how that helps cultivate... Well, mo- not during sex. Well, <laughs> Can <five>. you imagine? <laughs> that's, yeah. Fair enough. But just after. That
1: would really spice things up or not. Yeah. Make be, a little bit of a killer. Could be anything. <laughs> uh, uh, so you can go to a sexjournal.com to get that, right? That's right, yeah. So nice of them that they're giving just it away for free.
0: Super dope. Follow them on Instagram. Check them out. They're amazing humans and the beautiful couple And then this week on Friday, I'm really excited to be hosting a conversation with Darnell Moore, the author and um, artist and leader here in Los Angeles um, to talk about the future of masculinity. And that's just going to be an amazing conversation. I love having that conversation. And he is writing a book all about it. So we'll have some great voices in the room to talk about this.
1: Sweet. Friday, May...
0: May 15th, 15th at 5 p.m. Pacific. And you can check that out at www.extremist.love slash living room to sign up and just make a donation, whatever you feel comfortable with. It could be a buck, could be 20, and that'll go towards Darnell and putting this all together.
1: So sweet. Love a sliding scale. Love okay. a sliding scale.
0: Hey, that's there's love right there.
1: It's true. And if you have FOMO that you missed the sex journal workshop, That's true. Crush that FOMO, bro. Join the workshop live.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Crush it and come through. (laughs) Yeah. Every week we're going to be doing these and I do release a a video recap to those who participated or signed up. So even if you can't make it, I'll send you a video, Um, but do sign up and make sure you um, can, can just get down with this, this effort, because I think it's a really important time to connect in community and have these conversations. What's
1: the, what's the spiel behind the living room? At the living room.
0: The idea is just let's get back in the living room. We're all in, kind of cooped up in our living rooms independently. And I think creating a vibe where we are sitting together, even if it's virtual, um, is meaningful and creates this sense of egalitarian connection and co-creation where it's not just consumption and listening to someone but rather we can all part connect and participate and ask questions and share our stories and the point is not just me and darnell speaking but all of us connecting
1: totally i feel like i've been on a gajillion zoom calls lately where i just like almost zone out i turn my mute on and i turn my video off and i definitely don't get as much when i'm not like actively participating totally so
0: yeah this is all about camera's on you know we're there <laughs> be present show us your living room <laughs> i, bu- I want to get to the show with michael o'brien which is a really uh, amazing conversation we had but before i do i just want to give one more shout out to hop lark tea i am obsessed with hop lark tea michelle bought me a case of it <laughs> and we've just been stocking up on just this amazing stuff so basically I'm, i've been in ketosis for the last Two and a half years, basically, and brag about it. Hey, whatever. <laughs> trying to keep a tumor from growing in my brain. And um, this—it's rare to find a beverage that doesn't have carbohydrates or sugar and tastes like beer, but doesn't have alcohol. And it just is really refreshing. So it's been hot in LA, and I've been cracking them open every night and enjoying the sunset and having a tea.
1: Yeah, they're like hoppy fizzy teas, and they're brewed with hops, which are an herb that's calming.
0: Yeah, and it tastes like beer. it tastes like a light wheat beer. It's really delicious.
1: It's very funny to see you crack open a, a tall boy of hop hoplark with your shirt off as you're like sitting on the porch. <laughs> I love Smile. it. It's I love it. Kick back, babe.
0: Quarantine life.
1: <laughs> I'll drink my kombucha. You drink your hoplark.
0: <laughs> Living our best. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to this banter. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, maybe post a comment or get on Love Extremist. Uh, uh, the instagram and let us know because we want to continue just having a little one-on-one intro before we release the show anything left to left to add michelle
1: just that i love you
0: i love you too
1: thanks for making our house our whole house podcasting studio hey it's the
0: least i could do (laughs) all right folks enjoy the show with michael o'brien peace mike how are you I'm well, Ethan. How are you? I'm doing well. We are in the recording. It has nice. already begun. Oh, nice. This is <laughs> fancy. I've never uh, done this. <laughs> well, yeah. Welcome to the rest of your life. Right. I'm like, oh, um, I need to download this. and get moving. move <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty cool. I actually just started using it yesterday. So for everyone listening, we're on the Anchor app, and they have this amazing thing called... Uh, like record with friends something like that so yeah it just goes right through the phone and it's going to allow us to record this conversation so welcome Um, thank you i'm going to introduce you and then i guess we'll just kick things off does that sound good that sounds great awesome okay michael o'brien pronouns he, him, his, is an expert practitioner and budding researcher in the fields of community development, organizational culture, and human well-being, who has spent more than a decade working directly with resilient yet underserved populations, including veterans, adults in recovery, returning citizens, and families experiencing houselessness. He is currently an innovation fellow at Drexel University's Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation and was recently a Corzo Fellow at the Corzo Center for the Creative Economy at the University of the Arts. He is also the founder of HD2 Solutions, a consultancy working with nonprofits, businesses, local government agencies, and their employees to transform how they understand and support human development, interaction, and performance. Michael is inspired every day in exploring the science of our humanity. And you are in Philadelphia.
2: I am in Philadelphia. I, I appreciate you reading all of that. It's so interesting to hear your life back at you. <laughs>
0: yeah, it doesn't,
3: it doesn't yeah. feel
2: the way it reads sometimes. Um, I'm grateful, nonetheless. <laughs> it,
0: it's fascinating. I mean, when we, when we compile ourselves into paragraphs or even uh, words, how often, you know, sometimes we're conveying the right message and sometimes we're off the mark. But um yeah. you've done you do amazing stuff. Thank you. This is a slice of it. Um but is there a bio behind the bio that you would like to articulate? Yeah.
2: If it was left to me, right, if business and capitalism didn't work the way it does, I'd be like, I'm Mike, I love music, I love books, I love live music and I love books and I think humanity's worth so much more than we give it. And my mom is really Mm. cool.
0: (laughs) Nice. Wow.
2: I love that. What is a book you're loving or have recently loved? Oh, man. That's a rabbit hole discussion, but uh, a couple. (laughs) I'm reading a book right now called Imagination, The Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. It is a book that I have been waiting for for some time now to come out. Um, You know, a lot of my... uh, Reading and research since about the age of nineteen has been steeped in trying to understand um, human creativity, imagination, and I say human creativity because, uh, depending on like the idea and construct of creativity, I, I do think you see this phenomenon in uh, phenomenon. Excuse me, in uh, nature and in other species. Um, mm-hmm. So what? So then, what's human creativity? You know. Uh, versus uh, creativity found across multiple species. Is there a difference? Whatever. Mm. Um, so I got into that, and I've been reading so much around our developmental nature and the whole nine. And then this year, this book comes out, and I'm like, God, oh, I've been waiting for this book forever. So <laughs> yeah, It is fantastic, and it's um, uh, wonderful. Another book I'm reading right now is called uh, the Deep History of Ourselves, The Four-Billion-Year-Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledeau, who is a landmark neuroscientist and researcher. He's like the father, if you will, of the Pavlovian fear construct and understanding the fear-based mechanisms in the brain and body. Um, so yeah, those are I'll just leave those two. Yeah, those sound amazing. So
0: I'm curious about imagination because I was just having a conversation And listening in on someone talking about how they feel as though imagination is shifting with, um, or or our experience of imagination as children is different now that kids have the internet and kind of have immediate access to information unlike that, which we may have not had previously. Is that, do you think that argument holds holds water?
2: Well I think it holds water but I don't think it holds as much water as some people might give it and the reason I say that is because every civilization has had technological advances or every society over time has Mm -hmm. had these technological advances that move it forward exponentially Mm -hmm. compared to the generations Uh, before it. So I think about like books, for example, there was a time when books were not as widespread as they were, right? We didn't have the printing press and you had to copy them by hand Mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. So what happened when books became more widespread? I'm sure that changed people's imagination by far and maybe in a more significant way than we're seeing with technology. Maybe, right? I don't have any empirical data to back that up. Um, but, But you can imagine also in conjunction with just like books becoming more widespread the moment we decided to try to make everybody functionally literate you know from a a very um reading and writing based sense i'm sure that also had a massive impact on the collective imaginative faculty and who got to participate in certain kinds of ideation and thinking about the world in particular ways um mm. you know, so like I think so I do think technology is definitely, of course, like that person was talking about, changing the nature of how children imagine, particularly as digital natives, uh and the whole nine, but I don't know if we know enough collectively to say like that hasn't happened before. And I just,
0: there's plenty of are. His, historic examples. Yeah, that's a great point. So I want to jump into Love Extremist Radio in the most real sense. We had a conversation maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago now, where you had some relatively um, strong words, I would say, mm. about how you define or don't <laughs> define love. Mm. Um, and I just wanted, We'd love to just like wrap on that for a little bit and just kind of dig in sure. because I, I've kind of made a lot of my orientation as a human being after um, my, my brain cancer diagnosis um, about love and about coming up with clear definitions of love, actions that we can take to engage with it on a regular basis mm-hmm. and um, how, how we can use it as a tool for activism and um, I'd be curious to hear from you. First off, how do you define or not love?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think for me, love uh, is... Uh, I, have a, I have a definition and then I have an active probing, right? Okay. Um, that exists at the same time. And also healthy skepticism. They kind of right. all exist at the same time in space around love. Because... Um, on one, uh, on one end, you know, I've learned to define love by how love was demonstrated and operationalized in my life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's contextual, right? I know what love looks like for me, and it's largely based on the environments and people that I developed around over time, um, and on who I have been becoming over time right mm. um mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that those my definition based on all of those factors um is the same for other people right even a partner right you know romantic relationship sure, um, sure. so my definition of love has so much to do with investment in someone else's well-being um investment in my own well-being, in creating space for emergence, for people to be who they are going to be, to make mistakes, um, that every human has a right to make mistakes, every human has a right to their childhood, to innocence and to reclaim things that they feel like they might have lost, the right to reclaim that whenever you want. Um, yeah, you know, I wish it was more coherent than that, you know, but it's a really mm-hmm. like my definition of love is like a bunch of mind musings. Um, like I don't, like my definition of love also has to do with negation, right? There's There are philosophers or people who would say that you can't define something by what it's not. So I try to define mm-hmm. both what it is, but also give some clear definition as to what it's not so that we're also not playing around with, like, what could it be? Um, Mm. And even though it's okay to kind of probe and play like that, I like to be clear on, like, well, while we're asking what it could be, let's be clear on what it isn't. So what love isn't is harmful, Mm. right? Like, and and, And I also think about rights, right? So love or life, to me, does not give us the right to cause harm to other people. It might give us the option. But it doesn't give us the right, right to harm other people, and I think that's something that we have to sit with as a population and as individuals, um, because there's inadvertent harm and hurt that can be created when we don't mean to. Um, and so I do think that speaks to something around love and the intentionality that love takes, the purposefulness that love takes, the um, directedness that love requires when we start using that word and thinking uh, more about, like, how do my activities line up with someone else's well-being and their um, bettering and their growth and their space for joy, awe, and wonder, which are you know three other things that mm. are definitely involved in this mm. idea of love. I think humans have the right mm. to experiences of joy, awe, and wonder, and need it. Um, yeah. What is the role of harm then?
0: Then, because certainly we cause harm, as you said, inadvertently and sometimes intentionally, um, and sometimes we don't. Just like love, like we don't know if our actions or words are going to be harmful, right? And they may be, right? So, where do you see harm falling in terms of kind of its uh, purpose?
2: Right. So. Harm, pain, um, uncomfortability, um, grief, loss, um, these are all part of the human experience um, and are actually necessary for our growth, um, necessary for change, necessary for clarifying. um, And there is a developmental role these things play, particularly when you have access to supports and resources. Um, And not just, like, monetary resources, really, people resources, right? Right, Um, right, right. So there is benefit to these experiences, but not in mass and not consistent. Like, consistent pain, I don't know that it births much that's useful.
0: Mm. Well, there's no no room for air, right? Right. It's like if you're swimming and you're constantly being held underwater – eventually you're going to drown right so yeah the dynamism of emotion something i think about a lot because i've lived a a lot of my life feeling kind of like like singular in my emotions and i've had to kind of like deprogram from that and realize like no like you need to feel it all (laughs) and not run away or avoid any feelings that might be dark or hurtful or or shameful or fearful or painful um yeah that's all part of it that's all part of it but uh yeah i i feel you i think i think anything in in full press is going to be oppressive even one could argue love right like you know um there's plenty of examples of 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 love being too much um, so,
2: and I do think it's a part of like the human experience and learning uh, to figure out when you've caused harm or if I've caused harm. Uh, it's because it's one thing to experience harm; it's another thing to cause harm. Um, mm. It's you know, it's one thing to experience pain; it's another thing to cause pain. And there are relational things that we get involved in, like think about romantic relationships it's one thing to get into a relationship both people try hard and it just isn't working out and people break up or it's not working out for one person and they have to break up for with that the person they might still have feelings for because it's just not working for them right that's that person who's getting broken up with might feel harm might feel hurt might feel some pain but that's very different than like intentionally causing harm and intentionally causing pain or being reckless and careless with someone who has entrusted you with their love well-being whatever um in a relational uh 50 50 kind of way right and Hmm. there's also like this thing around uh calculated risks right we all know it's risky to do the love thing um (laughs) and we're wired to do it anyway the romantic love thing even friendships are risky right um Mm -hmm. and we we step out on trust right we step out on um belief that this other person holds my well-being in enough regard to at least be semi-conscious of not intentionally creating hurt and harm in my life, right? Um, So I think it's important to just like throw all those nuances out there because we can't escape hurt and harm, but I do damn sure think in the 21st century we could be minimizing how much harm we're creating as individuals and as systems, particularly as systems. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to zoom in a little
0: bit more squarely on how that um, activates in the context of harm being done across um, systems of oppression Mm -hmm. and how often those harms are not done necessarily out of intention, but rather out of training. Right or entrainment mm-hmm. or um kind of lack of awareness, some people use the word bias mm-hmm. um and i and i and I think it's very interesting to consider the connections between and the relationship between what is loving and what is um, and 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 what is tolerant, what is more than tolerant, what is inclusive um what is honorable, right like what is kind of revamping, and I know that that's an area of focus that that, that you work in, Yeah, um, and I do as well, and I'm just really fascinated by this question of where is the kind of intersection of love in dismantling systemic oppression, and how how does that, yeah, how how do those things kind of coalesce um, in the context of a professional environment or a friendship or something like that?
2: Yeah, so it's a, it's a powerful question. Uh, I, I like multi-tiered a bit, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think the first thing to like parse apart in that kind of inquiry is, uh, with oppression is like the, uh, the notion of these systems, right, that we talk about. Um, and the systems were created to make harm. And that harm was at the benefit of another group. There are a number of systems that um, have been created over many, many centuries really um, that have benefited, you know, X group um, through the creation of harm of wives group, right? Um, Happens with men and women terms of patriarchy, uh, happens in terms of race and caste systems, right, not just thinking about America. Um, so there, there are a number of ways that this has taken place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that has to do with human nature, right? People want to, nobody else, I'll phrase it in the negative, nobody wants to feel powerless. right nobody actively wants to feel like they have no control in the world right like so people as individuals would do things that they have to do need to do Mm -hmm. um to create power to create choice um so oppression i think the thing to think about or people should keep in mind with systems is that As they've evolved over time, and many of us, right, or all of us, we're living in inherited systems of oppression. Sure, we did not actively go out to create them, but the nature of them and their inception was pretty insidious and were not created for mutual benefit of all humanity. It was created with subjugation and degradation in mind. And as mm-hmm. part of the cogs and wheels. And we can't escape that. And the more and more we try to escape that and dress it up, it's kind of like, you know, for I, this, is gonna, this is such an intense metaphor, but it's like, imagine being in um, a large gymnasium with two elephants who have, and I apologize to anyone listening that might get grossed up by this, but two elephants that have like really insane ass diarrhea <laughs> you know, we're all, we're all just kind of like, oh, it's not that bad. It's like, what, what are we talking about right now, <laughs> right? Right. I feel like that's kind of what we're doing at large with the like oppression game, if you will.
0: Well, except that for some, they don't have the gene to smell the shit.
2: Sure, but well, this is where collective endeavors matter, right? Humanity is not a solo endeavor. So some mm-hmm. people might not have a, so let's call it a, a gene to smell or the ability to smell. Some people might not have the ability to see. Some people might not have the ability to see in color, whatever. But this is where our social nature, right? Because our biology and our social nature are forever intertwined. You can't even talk about uh, genes as a con or genetics as a construct without talking about gene and environment context, right? Because mm-hmm. that is the nature of how we develop. It is in an environment. And, and it's a dynamic uh, relationship. So I think we have to consider that when we do not honor the narratives of others outside of our own experience, that we're not even just denying their humanity, we're denying elements of our own humanity. Mm-hmm. when when we silence voices, right, when we intimidate voices. Because, um, you know, in the art world, we talk a lot about giving voice, and I'm always one to challenge that notion um, because I didn't give you a voice.
0: Right. It inherently was there. Through a power structure that
2: doesn't exist. Absol- absolutely right. And so you're, you're born with voice. And from the time you come out the womb people around you and the larger systems we're embedded in are either encouraging your voice, intimidating your voice, influencing your voice, silencing your voice, minimizing your voice, voice, threatening your voice. Um, But we're not, I'm not giving you voice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I can help you get some tactics to um, diversify the ways that you can use your voice. I mean, all kinds of things we can do, but I can't like literally give you voice. You're just born with that. And I don't mean the voices and vocal cords in your throat voice I mean uh, it includes that dimension but again not to be too ableist there are people who cannot talk who are mute that mm-hmm. doesn't mean they don't have voice because we there are so many ways to be communicative and literate and, and that don't include just reading writing and talking um and so again when we are not allowing narratives uh and experiences from other walks of life and from the full spectrum of our humanity in the full spectrum of the ways that people can live and be um, we, and the ways that they experience the systems and worlds that we currently have set up. You know, again, we are not just denying aspects of their humanity or maybe even totally their humanity. We're also denying aspects of our own humanity. So take racism, for example. Racism is just as detrimental to white people and is robbing them of elements of their humanity as well. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk about that enough.
0: We don't. And it's not, it's not evidently clear enough to, especially white people in power, to make systemic changes um, that we've seen. You know, we do see it, but, but in, in a, at, a, at a high rate. And so coming back to this concept of love, it's like, okay, so ultimately love is recognizing the humanity in all of us. The voice we all have, the value we all hold, it sounds like, but also being able to being able to wrestle with um, how our differences might hurt us and also help us, because there's that paradox there, right like yes, yeah, some people everybody has a voice, and yet some voices have m- more resonance at the table
2: for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I'd even say that not just resonance, they've given the space to even start resonating. Exactly. Right? right. Yeah, uh, it's uh, like. Yeah, are given a mouthpiece. Yeah, and it's. So uh, there was another part of the uh, former question that you asked that I think uh, relates completely to what you were just um, saying. And it has to do with the body as a construct, right? Um, and a lot of my workshops, I talk about, I ask this question, right? And I ask it multiple times throughout the workshop. What makes us human with, you know, an asterisk next to human? Because so much of humanity, uh, in terms of an operational definition, so much of humanity has been defined by clearly stating who was not human. Right. Right. And clearly making through acts of legislation and policy and through, um, you know, the construct of precedence, um, showing how that humanity could be operationalized or should be, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, So I ask that question, it's a little provocative and it pokes and it pokes. And people talk about the emotions and empathy and they talk about a lot of things. And then uh, and, there, and a lot of it's accurate, right? And I tell people, I'm not looking for right or wrong. I just want us to throw this out right now and talk about it as a group. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't know that we hold enough space to have two truths existing in the same space at the same time, right? Um, or more, right? Like. It, it's, it's, it can be difficult to have two opposing things be true. Oh, well, uh, yeah, we people must. People have to sit with that, <laughs> right? And we got to yeah. sit with it and talk about it and be uncomfortable with how much we might not know in the tension of those ideas being both true at the same time. And so one of the things I bring up for folks is sometimes it comes up from the folks is this thing around bias, both unconscious and conscious, Um, Because bias as a mechanism is fascinating, particularly on an unconscious end, because we're not talking about bias in the ways that I think it's been popularly, um, keep going back to this word operationalized, but popularly operationalized or popularly dealt with in culture. So it's like, ooh, know your biases, know all your biases. And it's like, well, that's not possible. Mm right? That's it's why it's unconscious.
0: It's not <laughs> a bias if
2: it's known. No. <laughs> or or it, it could be, right? But it's a conscious bias. Like, right, we got, there's mm-hmm. terms for that. There's unconscious mm-hmm. um, or implicit bias, and then there's conscious or explicit bias. So good example of conscious or explicit bias is the unequal pay gap, right? Mm-hmm. Women, with women, let's just take that one. Um, we know all the data's there. Right. There's legislation people are often trying to enact, or it did get enacted at one point, but like it's still not a thing that we have completely eradicated. But we're all conscious of it. We all know it happens. And it's a choice now, right? It's not, oh, that was out of my consciousness. I did I, like thought and action. I didn't realize that was happening. Right. Um, And so there are a number of ways that we consciously, um, bring our biases to bear and our choices and activities and the way we design systems and policies organizational culture the whole nine it's that other side that's real tricky right and that's why i i I grit my teeth and kind of like cringe every time i hear people say i know my biases i'm like oh my Mm -hmm. gosh like it's not even the fact that that's not fully possible it's the fact that that's your working mental model for how you're about to go interact with humans in the world Right, like you're writing, of you're writing
0: off all the biases you don't know.
2: <laughs> I, did, I did the work. I know what they are. I'm fair. Um, mm-hmm. I wish it was that simple, right? Like, I'm always trying to figure out, like, what is fair? Uh, mm-hmm. And every decision I make, I have to work through that and put it through my own metrics and value system and a rubric to get to the right decision. And if that decision is not checking off enough of those values and that rubric, then I'm like, well, that might not be the decision. And part of my rubric, because this is the way you fight unconscious bias, you gotta have systems in place. You gotta have mm. systems that back you up from the decision that you just made. So you can go, okay, now let me inform my intuition. Let me get mm. data, let me let me figure out that I've just made my landing in the right space and in the right moment of choice, right? Like, did I do the right thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and and without those systems in place, you don't, you won't know that because there's the construct of social cognitive bias. There are so many ways that it operationalizes. There's a lot of research in this area, but confirmation bias is real, All right? You, you'll believe that what you did, or said, felt, shaped up, framed up in terms of a problem or a solution is the right thing, and you'll continue through mm-hmm. with it, and. Mm-hmm. Someone trying to tell you you're wrong can make you just double down on that. Right. Even with facts, right? Totally. Um, Another form of social cognitive bias that's been researched is like the believability effect. Like you are more prone to believe people you like, even when they don't tell you the truth.
0: It's crazy. And we're watching
2: that happen at a national level right now. Mm -hmm. Even down to this COVID-19 situation. It's so wild to watch these are social cognitive biases at play. We are literally going like, well, maybe the medical community doesn't really know what they're talking about. Not we collective, but there are people that are literally going, well, maybe the medical community is wrong. Maybe they don't know what they're talking about. We can't mm-hmm. believe science all the time, fake news. And it's just like, well, wait a minute, guys.
1: Our mm-hmm. lives
2: on the line. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be skeptical, but it's like, again, informed intuition as opposed to just going with your intuition. Um, and we've gotta be just thoughtful. We have gotta be more thoughtful.
3: Mm. Mm.
0: So there, there's, there's a lot of kind of dynamics at play here. And I'm curious if you have maybe a story or like, um, yeah, an experience that you can share around someone kind of coming to terms with or discovering uh, a behavior or uh, something that they did that that was not OK or, or was hurtful and yeah. coming to love through that.
2: Yeah, I'll use myself as an example. And this might be – I'll give a little – a bit, a simpler example cool. of myself. So, like, when the WNBA came out when I was, like, maybe 19 or 20, um, mm-hmm. I, like, laughed at the idea. I thought it was a weird. I was like, who's going to watch that?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: My dad grew up in Connecticut where the women's team, UConn, College yeah, basketball—that was like the team, a, a dynasty, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I still couldn't wrap my mind around professional basketball playing for women, mm. and I didn't see anything wrong with it, right? Mm. And I remember my uh, women friends um, or my friends who women being like, "Michael, that's not okay. You can't think of that." And I would laugh and be like, "Whatever. Who's gonna watch that? I'm not gonna watch that." Mm. Mm. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older I looked back at that and was like, "Oh, that's embarrassing, Michael, and hurtful." Like, why? These are extremely successful players. You grew up watching the women dynasty take place, and like, you still can't even fathom that there's a space in professional basketball for women. And the craziest part is, I'm not even the biggest basketball and sports fan. So the fact that I still couldn't see it is, like, kind of wild. And it started mm-hmm. to open up for me, like, how many other ways might I be practicing sexism or harboring sexist ideas that I don't even fully understand and know about? Right. Um, you know, crossing into another area. Um, um, so I identify as queer. But, you know, to, um, you know, my friends would talk about, my friends who are queer would also talk about being straight passing and what that's like. Because mm-hmm. I can quote unquote pass for straight. And like when I heard it, it was a thought that had never crossed my mind like straight passing. I like it's a right. term that had never crossed my mind. I was like, wow, uh, that's interesting. Right. Um, and then thinking about friends and people I know, colleagues who are trans, like I was not aware that I actually harbored some unconscious bias and uncomfortability. To trans folks, and I'm a queer black guy, right? Like this Mm. stuff is really, really complicated, and I had to learn and be honest with myself and look at a look in a mirror and go through really go through experiences where I caused harm and I didn't mean to, because you couldn't have told me I didn't love people because I did and I do. But that doesn't mean I knew how to show that. And it doesn't mean that also in a society built on oppression, like I said, racism impacts white people. Patriarchy mm-hmm. impacts me too. I'm cisgendered. So I identify with the um, you know, gender I was assigned at birth the whole night. Like mm-hmm. there are privileges and disadvantages mm-hmm. baked into the same body for all of us. And I had to really think about like Michael... You might not have intended something to have happened, right, misgendering somebody. Um, Mm. You might not have intended for that to be harmful, but maybe it was, and you need to apologize. And also, like, if it's possible for that person to talk with you, like, maybe you do some talking and you do some learning, but you also have to be conscious to not do it in a way that creates emotional labor on that person's behalf.
0: I was going to ask, did, did you engage
2: with anyone that you feel like you may have
0: uh, uh, insulted or hurt?
2: I did. I had a really good friend. Um, I mean, she's still good people. But I had a really good friend who just could back up and go like, and you know, good people in my life. We don't see each other as much, but we're still good different. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was the one that was like, you know, you probably need... She identifies some things in the trans space and was like, you probably need to actually like have legitimate conversations with someone who's trans. Mm. Like, I know you talk to people, but like, I know you, you need to, and I'm like, Oh, but I do, I do, I do. And she's like, no, 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 Michael, you really need to invest in a conversation, but that's only if you really want to, because maybe what you're getting exposed to is that you don't even know how to love a trans person. And I was like, oh, mm. that's dean. I was like, when I love humans, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that generic love humans thing, but it's theoretical until you have to actually put that love on a human body that might not connect with your identity, might not connect with spaces and places in the world that make you feel comfortable. And what are you going to do about that? And so I had to like sit with that kind of stuff. Right? right. And sit in like being a part of projects where I hurt people by mistake, you know, just like talking and not, not giving up enough space for them as mm-hmm. a man, right? Um, mm-hmm. As a cis man, right? And not understanding mm-hmm. how even with good intention of helping, I might just be stepping on people's toes. Um, and I just want to press yes. pause
0: real quick sure. just because that you just articulated is one of the greatest acts, I would say, of love that we can give is to step um into a space of listening when we are in a group as cis men yes um and 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 purely and purely listen and not need to exert our voices or our opinions or our thoughts over um others in the room who might want to share and feel um, t- he- hesitant to do so or not the first to jump at the microphone or whatever it is, so I just wanted to articulate that because i think that's a really important point but keep keep going
2: yeah no i think uh and i appreciate you underscoring that because that is so real and it doesn't just because we you know grow and evolve and i'm much better than i was before i still have to actively work at that because right. the world that you and i grew up in is one that says that we just have those rights inherent like i don't even have to think about it. i just mm-hmm. i'm here here my mm-hmm. opinions <laughs> <Right>? like yep. <laughs> and so this is what matters right and by default i know without trying i'm showing up like that then you add in my personality and i'm inquisitive and i'm curious and i like to share like i have to dial it back i have to actively be conscious and so one of the techniques and again like systems to challenge the bias that's unconscious that can operationalize at almost any time i have a method of what i call compassionate inquiry and i try to lead so i lead with that i like i want to know more about you and i also say things in my head like michael ask more questions listen more don't that impulse to speak right now just hold that back you can share that in 10 minutes yeah right you know it doesn't have to be right write it on a piece of paper you won't lose it just hold on
0: right Yeah. Um, yeah totally totally Thank you for sharing that and for sharing your personal experiences uh, in regards to kind of evolving and recognizing where you may have had shadow or unawareness um, and and stepping into more clarity and owning it. I'm curious when you approach an organization as a facilitator, what some of the dynamics you look out for? Because you go into spaces, companies, organizations, and help them deal with addressing some of these biases, some of these um, just dynamics as, you know, collaborative teams. Um, so what are you looking out for?
2: Yeah, so, you know, really quickly, just to round out my last thought, because I, I meant oh, cool. to, yeah, something for sure. that came up in my mind earlier and I didn't put it out, but one of the things that helped me listen more was like, was the fact that I don't want to intentionally create harm in people's lives. And an awareness that without trying we do that as human beings right even though we don't want to we all have created harm in somebody's life um and we will again right um and so because of that i want to uh, put hyper intention and focus on learning from those moments so that i'm not doing it again as best Mm. i can to my ability and that to me is love operationalized right it's not a destination or a place. It's a mental model of being and in relationship to other people um, that you Mm. constantly have to work at. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. So Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) I hope (laughs) I can, you know, it's like living up to it, right? The the beautiful, challenging part. Um, In terms of what I'm looking for with organizations, um, I'm looking to understand what's there. And I understand through narrative and through data, right? So, what I'm really looking for is how much of what you say matches the story you tell, and who is an exemplar, or what um, departments are exemplars of the quote-unquote good and the quote-unquote challenging or bad, right? Mm. Um, mm. Because that nexus of stuff gives me some quote-unquote reality, for lack of a better term. <laughs> to sit, to sit in. The quote-unquote reality. <laughs> yeah, to, sit, to sit in and start to do the sense-making of what's really at play and what's happening. Mm. Um, so I talk to lots of people. Um, i get and does that normally start one-on-one it does it normally starts with the decision maker of who's <laughs> sounds right capitalist. Right. who's signing the checks right uh, it starts with right. the decision makers who holds the power right and then i go into the process of like getting a lot from them and then doing some sense making out of that um and i'm asking questions along the way the whole nine they might give me data that i can look at whatever and then Um, I'm from there asking to talk to more people Mm. and yeah, collecting and organizing and making sense of what's been happening. Um, And I do it in confidence, right? Like the things that are said to me, I don't share with other people in the company so that I can get real stories. So I can hear about when people have said things, done things and nobody's done anything about it and they've emerged it. Right. Or I can hear Mm -hmm. about, All the microaggressions that happen, and not just around race, right? Because people have intersectional identities. Of course, like to be a queer Mexican migrant woman, woman who speaks English as a second language, right? Like, I need to understand parts of that experience in the workplace, and I need to understand how other people think about identity in the workplace, right? So I need people to feel safe. Wow. And that's also something what of, some that's the... important, how safety feels.
0: Yeah, that's so important. What What are some of the biggest learnings you've got from doing this work, just on a personal basis? Uh,
2: yeah, so kind of continuing along that safety route. Um, you know, I learned that safety exists in multiple definitions or multiple dimensions right? at the same time. Um, mm. So, you know, there's a, a mentor of mine, this is a brilliant woman, psychiatrist named Dr. Sandra Bloom, she created something called the sanctuary model. It's an organizational cultural model for institutions and organizations that want to become what's known as trauma informed. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that she posits in her model is when thinking about safety, um, there are four main dimensions in which you can think about safety. not saying they're the only, but there are four major categories, right, uh, okay. that help orient. So there's physical safety, psychological safety, um, or even emotional safety. When I have to uh, talk to certain groups, I might say emotional safety. There's social safety, right, or relational safety. I'll use that term sometimes. And then there's moral safety, which I often have translated to uh, identity-based safety. Because moral Mm. in the academic construct is not about morality, it's not about right or wrong, but it's about the core spaces of your identity, values, belief system that are informing all of the mechanisms that get you to the point of decision-making and judgment Mm. that then you start to look at as right or wrong, right? So even kind of working backwards to certain things I was talking about quickly with bias and unconscious bias, Um, I spent a lot of time working on that with folks, but I walked through a system of understanding where we look at the bias mechanism, both conscious and unconscious, then we look at judgment, Mm -hmm. then we look at decision-making, then we get to morality. Okay. Right? So as an example of all of that, if we did not have uh, a bias mechanism that Included what we call unconscious bias. Every time as a three-year-old, an adult came to you who didn't mean you well and had a piece of candy, it was like, come with me. You, would, you might be inclined to go with them. Right. right. It's the fact that we learn stranger danger. It's the fact that we learn and see examples of this thing uh, in terms of like the stranger danger construct and we learn that Mm -hmm. all humans don't mean you well, um, That we then in those moments can go in split seconds, your body has cues and all these things are coming together, put different parts of your brain are pulling up because your brain's an interconnected whole, even though there are different parts that are heavily involved in other things, it's the fact that these areas are involved with each other right? That really makes the brain this magnificent organ. And so when cues show up, stimuli shows up in the environment, it's cueing your body. So you see to what's going on. And you have this emotional right. response mm-hmm. also that is cueing your body. Because emotions are about mm-hmm. information, really. It, you are It is mm-hmm. directing your attention to something being important in the moment. It's not necessarily directing you to the truth, quote unquote, or the facts of the moment, but it's directing your attention to what's important in the moment. And when you as a child, a three-year-old see, okay, person I don't know, candy, car, this could be stranger danger, help me out somebody. I don't know what's happening, right? Like all of that's happening relatively fast. Mm -hmm. Not even relatively fast, like really fast, right? So all that being said, And I think it's important to remember that in terms of safety, one of the things I've recognized is it's not just our physical safety that can trigger the bias mechanism to put cues together really fast and land at a decision and these or or land at a frame or a thought process in response to what's happening. Um, And by frame, I mean, if you think about like putting the corners on the end of a puzzle, uh on the ends of the puzzle rather so you can kind of start seeing the shape of what's what's here and start putting things together to make sense of it um your brain does that a lot and actually not having enough information is one of the main domains of how social cognitive bias research has um emerged right like we know that's a Mm. huge area where a ton of different types of social cognitive biases kind of fall into a bucket or category. And so when our safety, we're always as human beings assessing for our safety in one of those four categories at least. And so it's really possible for people to pick up information and messages in relationships of all kinds, not just for romantic or friendship, like professional relationships, et cetera. It's possible for people to be picking up all kinds of info a communication that we're not even dropping
3: right, right.
2: because the cues right. that they're receiving so as a man yeah right going back to myself as a man a cis man i gotta be conscious of what i'm dropping and not dropping mm. right and i gotta make sure that i am intentional about what i'm communicating and how and not just with my voice with my hands my body language etc so This is, um, I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned is that people are bringing with them their history and social context, because that's the other thing about conscious, uh, excuse me, unconscious bias in particular. Um, It is highly influenced. That's why it's called academically social cognitive bias. It is highly influenced on how you've been socialized, what environments you've been in, from macro culture to like what's on TV and all of that stuff and on the Internet to like what happens in your household? How are people talked about? How do you see things played out? What's happened in your school? What have you experienced in the context of your own identity and relationship to the identities of others? Like all of that is also like heavily informing and shaping your bias mechanism. And so people are bringing their histories with them wherever they go, unaware of it or not. And it is actively playing out in many moments. Um, yeah. Do you think we can disassociate from our biases
0: in the service of healing and essentially, like, collective development.
2: I'm not sure what you mean by disassociate from our biases.
0: I guess what I mean is, like, is there a way for us, like, so often I think, like, we kind of allow this general bucket of unconscious and or conscious bias to become a catch-all for inappropriate and unacceptable behavior, and her hurtful behavior. Hmm. So. And I guess yeah. I'm wondering, like, is, do you do you align with that that thought, or am I am I kind of off base there?
2: No, I don't think it's about whether or not you're off or on base. I think a lot of it has to do with like the paradigm we're operating out of. If bias is un- inescapable, right? Mm, um, right. What does that then mean? about how we're going to exist in relationship with each other. And that's relationships that are transactional, like me going to the store and purchasing a thing as a teller or a clerk is checking my stuff out, to relationships that are a little more obligatory, like work, to relationships that are much more of my choosing, like my friends, right? Uh, to the relationships I don't have choice over, like my family, right? Like all of these things, like. We are human in all of those places. And so this goes back to my thing in my workshops, like what makes us human and really starting to dig into the uh, developmental perspective that humans are um, psycho bio or bio, excuse me, biopsychosocial, spiritual beings, right? Um, this has been a term that's been iterative in the context of developmental science over some time. Um, and I think around 2014 was when spiritual in the literature started getting tacked on. Um, but it was a big thing for us to recognize that we are biopsychosocial beings, and that is the nature of how we develop. They're, it's intertwined. You can't just pick one and not pay attention to the other because they're dynamic. It's a dynamic system mm. of development. And so I think with your question, right, when I split the paradigm and think in those kind of constructs, it's not about dissociating or disassociating from our biases is being aware that it's inescapable and making systems and processes at the individual level all the way up to the systems level that puts that shit in check got it got
0: it yeah i mean i think i think for me i struggle with the language um and any language that gives folks a pass right from like the power dynamics at play so every, every human interaction has a power dynamic. And there's someone usually who holds one L area of power and someone who holds another. And often it's multidimensional and there's power in different ways. But ultimately, I find a lot of folks using the language of bias as a way of writing off growth or writing off um, evolving beyond it. if if that makes any sense because as soon as a bias is articulated and becomes conscious or becomes clarified it's like oh like you're operating from a place where you know this was ingrained in you and it means you are acting in a way that perpetuates racist behaviors and if that's articulated and clarified to a person they either can say, Yeah, you're right, that that makes sense. And that's true. And then they have that knowledge to move forward and operate from a a, a different place or they can be in denial and avoid it or or say no. You know, and and I think I think in that as soon as biases become clear and as soon as we become clear about them, like they no longer hold the power, I, I would say, that they did when they were invisible.
2: Yeah and no, right? Like, they no longer hold the power if we actively do something about it, Mm. right? Because, again, at the end of the day, it's less about the conscious bias. It's more about the unconscious stuff. It operates under your level of understanding directly. Mm. And so, like, there's times I've had people say in worship, oh, I can't possibly be sexist. Like, I love my daughters and I love my wife. And I'm like, and eh, yep. right, <laughs> right. We, work, we work through it. I'm loving and kind about it. But I'm also fair. Yeah. And I lovingly challenge, right, the ideas and the notions, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, to, to go to some more historical examples, Thomas Jefferson was in love with his wife's half-sister, who he also owned and father right. children with her. And he also owned a whole bunch of other slaves. And right. it was a really inappropriate relationship because she was much younger than him, right? And like, so there's all this shit, but he's also writing yeah. these documents about freedom and independence and inalienable rights and stuff, right? And with the clique of people who were talking like that, right? And so that's how blind unconscious bias can make us, that we can be living in polar opposites of the truths that we're expounding,
3: Mm.
2: and and it's okay, confirmation bias, it's okay (laughs) I believe it and Mm -hmm. it's fine so I think at the end of the day let's get, and I'm actually, it's interesting, I talked about inalienable rights because I think, you know, a framing probing question for us is given globalism and the nature of globalism and where we're at in the world, particularly with COVID-19 the two questions and two ideas on rights that I think we need to explore, one is Do we have the inalienable right to create harm at the, yeah, or, (laughs) or no, right? And do, and who has the right to say how much developmental and social and emotional risk populations should be exposed to? Like who has those rights? Because we don't talk about them, but they're clearly rights that some people have.
0: And ultimately, it comes down to surface level economics, and what that inherently means is, you know, race and culture, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And and we see that, right, in class. Yes, and the people who are at the front lines are often those who don't have the economic means to work from home or not work. And gender, yeah. yeah, yeah, right yeah there's a lot it's an interesting moment so i'm curious about you know i'm always kind of like trying to find kind of the the silver lining in these conversations that can sometimes feel really weighty where where does liberation show up in your work or where where do you find liberation yeah the
2: first liberation starts inside it's internal Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I have to. It's like, it's like the first love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Right. It's real hard to give love to others and operationalize love that you can't practice on yourself. Um, that's right. And I've been learning that about myself. Right. Like, in iterative stages. um And so that's the first thing. Is I think the first thing is this liberation that uh, of the self and on the inside you can do and be exactly. Who you want to be, you can. And you can do exactly what you want to do, you know. And even within limits, you still have choice. Doesn't feel like it. Um, and in many ways, there are very few choices available to the point where certain things are just not choices, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But if we drill down far enough, and this doesn't absolve oppressive systems from their culpability in the literal dismal living conditions of lots of people on the planet and in our country. But on the flip side, if you drill down far enough, there's always something that is in your control. And it's like you got to find that space. And it's, it's hard and damn near impossible. I won't say fully impossible, but it's hard and damn near impossible to do that by yourself. Wow. So you gotta be connected to other human beings and you gotta be connected to at least one person, a little bit older than you in particular, the younger you are, a little bit older than you, who can support you enough in crucial moments when you need it. Like our Mm. our collective survival is really based on how we show up for each other. And so that's Mm. the other part around liberation is that those of us with more power and privilege have to do the deeper work of understanding how do we show up on behalf of other people, particularly those of us that are slanted thor- towards things like philanthropy and slanted toward giving back and social justice, et cetera. What is justice like in the context of someone's right to thrive, their right to be, their right to define for themselves if they want to be in a box what labels on that box and if they don't want to be in a box that's completely right and fine for them too and how are we showing up on their behalf as an ally how do we show up as a better listener how do we show up as someone not trying to superimpose what i think justice looks like for that person Um, Mm. and that that's that's such a beautiful point thank you
0: I, and I I'm really glad you brought it up. I'm sorry I cut no, you go off there. It. I I just wanted to say I think there's this really interesting challenge right now. When just to speak from my own experience as a white cis man um, living in this positionality, recognizing that systemic oppression exists and is a reality for so many of us on this planet in our bodies and in our daily lives. And wanting to honor, honor is not the right word, respect and acknowledge that reality, work towards dismantling it, and also not assume that people are, um, unliberated, if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense, right? Like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't, I don't want to show up from this place of, like, um, and, uh, bypassing or like gaslighting the realities of oppression and i simultaneously don't want to gaslight the potential for immense liberation and freedom and and joy and beauty and creativity and all the things that people who are or may identify as oppressed have and maybe even have in more abundance because of that you know i certainly can name that from you know my jewish faith and seeing certain areas of vibrancy amidst the traumas mm-hmm. of the jewish identity and shared experience and so i guess i'm 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 just fascinated by that and holding those two poles of, you know, and people talk about things like manifestation and being able to, like, liberate oneself through your mindset or your, your va- you know, what you focus on and expands and all these types of things. And it's also like, okay, yes, and if you're getting aggressions hurled at you all day because you're a woman or you're a trans person or you're disabled, you know, how do you reconcile those two things? And right. so, yeah, I guess it's on an individual basis, but I'm curious um, how you look at those polls.
2: Yeah, so I think about, again, I, my definition of humanity is rooted in the fact that, actually, I appreciate you bringing up your Judaic heritage, because I spent a lot of time studying Jewish mysticism, um, I studied with a Orthodox rabbi for a while for a college project, um, I oh, took amazing. a comparative religious studies course, um, And that's such a fascinating story of how I even ended up specifically studying Jewish mysticism in this course. Um, Wow, we got got another podcast (laughs) between us. Yeah, man. And uh, it had such a profound impact on my sense of justice because I was already very social justice driven. um, And I I stayed studying and reading for years, even after my uh, engagement with the rabbi, which was prolonged, too. Like, I only had to do a semester couple of weeks in the semester and I ended up being with him the whole semester and extending that out to just keep learning and talking and probing. And one of the things I learned from a lot of my readings was this idea that, of rights, right? And I don't remember, I wish I could give name credit. I don't remember what rabbi I was listening to. It was an Orthodox rabbi who said, you know, there's two approaches to this idea of rights. He said, there's Mm -hmm. this idea that um, you have rights because I have rights. He said, and the Jewish notion of rights is, I have rights because you have rights. And I said, oh, that's so subtle, but so beautiful, right? Um, And I would argue that, you know, it's not even just a Jewish notion. It seems to be that across a lot of indigenous cultures, there's this idea around collectivism and the whole and responsibility on the well-being of the village or of that world that they all exist in being equally shared amongst all. So mm-hmm. the idea, and I have a friend who is a lawyer, she's um, a former theater professional who became a lawyer and is a defender. And she works mm-hmm. a lot with children and youth, but has also done adults on a defender's uh, side. And she's Ethiopian and Egyptian And she is brilliant and passionate and caring. And I don't mean passionate in a trite way because, you know, sometimes people say things like, oh, that person's so passionate, and it means they're just, like, those are are code words for something else. But, I mean, her passion comes out, like, intellect and passion together with a certain kind of courage makes a fierce-ass warrior in the right way. You know what I mean? And yeah. Uh, yep. She is a shining example of that. Her name is uh, Aziz Midori and Aziz mm. said to me when we were talking about some juvenile justice um, abolition work, really, because we believe we believe in abolition and that's the goal. and We understand reform as a construct to get to and actualize abolition. So we were talking mm-hmm. about juvenile justice abolition and she said to me, you know, Michael, the thing I don't get about this country, she said, "My, if you were to talk to my grandparents, my parents, about a juvenile justice system, I mean, they would look at you like you were crazy. It's like, we don't have constructs like that because it's not a failure of the child when they commit an act like that. We see it as a failure of the whole community. It's the adult's fault. What yeah. have we done to right. not support this young person? What happened? And what do we need to do to make sure this does not happen again? So, so we don't even have a place to send them like that because it's just not. We don't. We're not placing the blame in some pathologized way on this 14-year-old, this 15-year-old, this 12-year-old, this 7-year-old, right? In certain states, in Virginia, handcuffing six and seven-year-olds, right? I mean, it's a wild story. Um. Anyway, I think I tell I share those things because I think that. The, The answer to your question is found in that kind of a paradigm. We are responsible for each other. And it also is true that I am responsible for myself. Yeah. Two truths existing in the same place at the same time. And what we're trying to do in the West, particularly in the 21st century, we are still harping on individual responsibility being the only responsibility that exists. And this is why COVID-19 is ravaging our country compared to the others. We're the only ones experiencing unemployment and loss of income access in terms of the impact on society and communities. We're the only ones experiencing it like this. Mm. Wow. There's a brilliant brilliant op-ed in the New York Times from two economists that worked with uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren um, when she was... um, brought in by barack obama former president barack obama to uh come up with the the uh oh my god what was it called all the banking regulation change that she came up with yeah at that yeah. time they wrote a brilliant op-ed on this and it's just stunning to see what other countries and spaces in the world are doing as their economies are also bottoming up but there's a right. notion there around this idea of collective responsibility and individual responsibility existing in the same place at the same time
0: that's, that's a powerful and important and perfect place for us to just kind of let this conversation glide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's a really beautiful point, is holding those two truths and, and recognizing our individual responsibility does not exist in a vacuum, and we all have a collective responsibility towards each other for our ultimately our survival and our liberation and yes. our our joy and our love um, and I, I, I really thank you for kind of articulating your work and, and, and your perspectives on this and um, you know we, we, we got into some 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 deep some deep material so um, yeah Michael I, I love what you're up to and, and I really appreciate you. you
2: making time for this oh uh, absolutely thank you for sharing the space for me to just think talking be, you know, and I also just want to underscore the importance of what you're doing by bringing light to these conversations and bringing different minds around and practitioners and people to to just share and put light on love, right? Like, it's a Mm. thing that we all use in terms of language. We use that word a lot. We talk about it a lot, but we don't really go in depth about it a lot, so I appreciate that. A lot.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. very, really important to me. And um, I'm glad you, you, you recognize that. And I appreciate you uh, saying that. So how can people find you? What's the best place for folks to, to get more of Michael O'Brien?
2: So, yeah, I'm in the middle of like a whole branding switch up, change up thing. But uh, for, at the moment, I am on Facebook for sure. It's Michael O'Brien, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. My last name is O apostrophe B r-y-a-n so i'm on facebook under michael o'brien um i am available via email at mike at hd2solutions.com that's the number two hd number two solutions.com cool Uh, yeah those are the two best ways to get in touch with me i've got an instagram handle but like my instagram is kind of funny
0: so, <laughs> all right, we'll keep it there and uh, share that with the folks. Um, just to take us out, what's your favorite love song of the moment? Oh, that is
2: such a good question! Wow, what is my favorite love song of the moment? I think I have two. Okay. Um, one's called "Symphony" by Marvin Gaye. Okay. And then I'm gonna say, okay. Well,
0: what's the next? Yeah. One?
2: yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> Symphony by Marvin Gaye, and then the other one. Um, It's called um, Not Coming Back by BJ the Chicago Kid and PJ Morton. Uh, Mm. It's more like a heartbreak song, but it's still about love, and it's still so beautifully written and sung and performed.
0: Not Coming Back by BJ the Chicago Kid.
2: All right, I'm I'm, I'm doing that one. Nice. Um, You should listen to Symphony by Marvin Gaye. It is a beautiful song. You will love it. Okay, I will listen to both. Nice.
0: Dope. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been a fantastic conversation on Thank Love you, Extremist Radio. Uh, thanks all for listening. Please share this with your friends if it resonates. Post a comment on iTunes. And we'll see you next week. All, all right, right, Michael, take care. Take care.